Welcome to Spritz and Scrums, a podcast by three Benetton fans with a love for Aperol and all things Rugby Italiano. After three Premiership clubs have gone bust in one season, we've got an exclusive interview with one of sport's premier commercialisation experts, shining a light on the issues faced by English rugby, the state of affairs of the Six Nations and how to grow the game in Tier 2 European rugby. Welcome back, everyone. Now, this week, we've gone a little bit off-piste. Now, after the demise of London Irish, we're here with a rugby commercialisation expert, Jeremy Kent, CEO of Loud House Limited and a former back row himself, to tell us what the fuck is going on in English rugby. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. I mean, we're so excited because we we don't know what's going on and it's great that we've got somebody who does know what's going on. For people who don't know, Jeremy is also one of the most incredible pub quizzes that I have ever met. In lockdown, this man was basically on his own taking part and winning every week. He was beating teams continuously. Jeremy Kent's knowledge is incredible. To be fair, I did have my girlfriend helping out off camera and she's a <gasps> lot smarter than I am. <laughs> Is her name Google? <laughs> I think I've called her that once, but uh, I'm not going to do it again. No. And she knows you, Ed. She knows you. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we've gone a little bit off-piste, as mentioned, but it, I think that it's such an interesting topic. Obviously, last week, London Irish. A couple of weeks ago, we had Jacob Umanga, who used to play for Wasps um, on the podcast to kind of tell us about his experience with Wasps going under as well and moving across to Benetton. And even he was like, you know, I have no idea what going on so I feel like it's something that fans don't really understand but also people in the middle of it players so yeah what's going on and I suppose the first question is specifically I guess about London Irish what happened and did people see it coming I guess across the board for Worcester Irish wasps did any of you predict this well it's not just a rugby thing and again I don't have all the facts and I don't have the inside bits but speaking as somebody who works across a raft of sports and the commercialization of a lot of this comes down to COVID and not necessarily bad business practice with the clubs involved. Okay. Wasps in particular with the Rico was carrying a heavy mortgage mm-hmm. and, uh, stadium. and when COVID came along, the first thing that went was ticket money, not just ticket money, your program money and your signage around the pitch. Now, if you're Formula One or you're a premiership football club, you still had big TV rights coming in and they were contracted to go for a long time. But once you start to drop away into smaller sports in terms of of revenue, rugby being one, that left an enormous black hole in the finances. And I think the reason you're seeing it come out in this season is for a while you've got savings or you can have a whip round or you can restructure your borrowing. But at the same time, you're using today's money to fill in yesterday's black hole. And now with interest rates going up as well, that black hole gets larger. It's always, oh, you have a bad year and it's always two or three years after you start to see the failures. You couldn't have predicted which clubs were going to go unless you went through the accounts and saw who'd got big mortgages. But you could look at sports in general and say there's going to be problems here, here and here. And and I think you'll probably see other sports go through the same thing because there just isn't the money in rugby that there is in premiership soccer. That's super interesting because the fact that it's not specifically the sport, but the fact that it's a smaller sport, are there sports that you think will experience a similar situation? Uh, Yeah, but um, you're not going to get me forecasting that one. On <laughs> when we try and help our client base turn around yes is the answer it's like any other business probably with with the english leagues there was a uh, little more money there to start and so they borrowed and geared up to to develop the game quite rightly and there was no um no will here they, this was about buying bigger stadiums and growing the sport and covid came along and took their legs away it's just that you're seeing it happen now actually that's uh, the jacob when he was on he was saying that wasps had just spent a ton of money rebuilding all of their facilities they had some of the best facilities in the country and that seems I guess they contracted that pre-COVID, didn't anticipate COVID as nobody did. And then we're in a probably bigger hole than say other clubs because then that's my next question. Why are some clubs able to survive then? Again, without going through all the accounts, I'd, I'd be saying uh, the clubs that perhaps had their stadiums already paid for or had a beneficial deal with local authorities and so on. So they didn't have that same exposure to, to having to pay 
yeah. uh, mortgages or, or um, development loans. And then, of course, with interest rates going up and predicted to go up further, you, you may well see other sporting clubs in other areas suffer in the same way. Whereas if you'd already had that all bedded in pre-2019, 2020, then your exposure to interest rate shifts isn't going to hit you quite as hard. It will hit you, but you'll survive. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, of the calendar because it's days are numbered. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise to everyone. Eddie's Eddie's in the mood for. Sorry, I should jokes. explain. I've got a list of dad jokes here, and whenever it gets a little bit too bleak for comic relief, I'm going <laughs> to throw one out there. You know, I should do some lunges to stay in shape, uh, and that would be a big step forward. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeremy. I apologise. So, but then why is it... Okay, is it just a coincidence then that the three clubs that have gone under are all in England? Um, I think, as I say, there was more money in the English game at the time. So I would I would imagine that they have taken out the, the bigger loans to develop their facilities and so on. Or they've got a, a other costs elsewhere because the salary cap should have kept most things in line on, on the team side. Yeah. But Welsh, Welsh rugby's got a similar problem with, uh, with money. Uh, lower league football has a similar problem with uh, with money. Although, again, most of their stadia has been established for a long time, so their, their borrowings aren't as high. But again, they don't have the TV rights. So it's just one of those unfortunate things. And I think you'll start seeing it in uh, the wider economy now. That backlog from, from COVID will start to come through in the economy. Mm-hmm. So with a, a premiership club, where does the general financing come from? So you talk about TV rights, but BT Sport shows the game. So surely the clubs are given something by BT Sport. And does the RFU also hand them money as well to give a sort of baseline finance? Yes and no is the answer. So the TV money will be done with whoever's the rights holder for that. I guess that would be the English premiership selling the rights to premiership and the RFU does indeed help clubs out uh, further down and, and quite possibly these ones too. But the actual TV rights would have gone through um, through the premiership itself, I would have thought. The RFU tends to look after England rights. So when push comes to shove and things go under, they're basically on their own. There's no... So say, for example, in Italy, and I think Ireland has a similar model, but correct me, but in Italy, you've got the two franchises in the United Rugby Championship, Benetton and Zebre, and they are both given, I think, about £5 million each year by the Italian Rugby Federation as a sort of foundation amount of money for them to operate in a professional league. And then Benetton goes off and achieves a lot of sponsorship and uh, Zebre achieves a little bit of sponsorship. There's an excellent article on this by Carbo Rugby. If any of our listeners know Carbo Rugby, that's I'm getting it from. Great guys. So yeah, but in, in England, it's, you're on your own. You're an individual. You're not getting that. I know that the RFU helps out a number of clubs and, and it does a, in a variety of ways. But when you're a, a fully established commercial operation you certainly wouldn't get that kind of help from the RFU I don't think I'd have mm. to check but if you just scale the numbers up to the number of teams in the premiership it's it's two in Italy yeah. but if you yeah. do that for all of those plus you've got all the community clubs you've got four national leagues what you get is not going to be sufficient to cover you out without robbing Peter to pay Paul and the RFU has a responsibility to grassroots sports as much as it does at the, the elite level if you don't take care of the grassroots you won't have an elite level for long because you haven't got the players coming through yeah mm. yeah yeah of course which is probably why maybe scotland doesn't have this problem because there's only two big clubs same as italy really i guess yeah is that maybe why well even scottish rugby shifted hasn't it if you go back 15 years certainly 20 years ago the big clubs in scotland were mostly edinburgh based or melrose on the borders and and now it's shifted much more towards glasgow so they've been through their own set of reforms ireland's been through uh, a lot of reforms that are really paying dividends now yeah, uh, the way that they've got the academy players coming up and through farmed out into the the provinces, and and they've now got so much talent coming through that hence since we're seeing the the articles talking to the RFU about bringing London Irish back yes. to life to take their academy players, which is great. That is great. But I, as I say, it's, it's it's very easy to bash the RFU or bash the Premiership and other things. But those guys are doing their best to mm. to manage a, a whole range of spectrum, different interest groups, different clubs, each chairman and each CEO in each club has their own agenda and I can tell you having worked with a lot of rights holders and, and governing bodies it's a pretty thankless job there's always somebody that's unhappy with you and the things you get right don't tend to make it into the newspapers as much as the things that somebody believes you've got wrong of course always the way it's just like rich with his driving he drives brilliantly 90 percent of the time and then 10 percent of the time it's a speeding ticket parking ticket whatever it may be but that's that's all the dvla want to talk to him about have you paid that ticket no, we're cutting this out. 
No, absolutely been, not. Absolutely he's, not. He's been sitting on a speeding ticket for about no. six months. I pay, no, I'm doing the, the speed awareness thing. Very good. I had a friend yeah. of mine who got done for speeding on her way back from one of those. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be me. Anyway, why do fathers take an extra pair of socks when they go golfing in case they get a hole in one? You married that. <laughs> <laughs> So as you say, nobody could really predict which clubs were going to go under. It was just a feeling that obviously generally the premiership was going to struggle as a as a response of COVID. It was more a feeling of, of, of sport in general, which sports are going to, to struggle. Yeah. And even if you'd loaded yourself up with debt, as many businesses did with bounce back loans or, or stuff, it still has to be repaid at some point. The three clubs that have gone bust, they're, they're very big clubs. I was wondering if it actually could have been sold by just having it packed out every weekend. Were they always doomed to fail, basically, is what I'm saying? No, I don't think so. When you take ticket sales away, it's a commodity that can't be replaced. Yeah. So the fact that you then have tickets coming back in for next year's matches doesn't mean you've got the income from the previous year's matches. They, they, they can never be resold. That money's just gone. Yeah. But you're over heads remain yeah that's the killer it's just like any other business you know, if, if you've got a commodity that's perishable in this case it's time with with matches it's straight off your inventory but your costs remain remain the same in fact your costs are increasing because your borrowings are increasing it's actually a little bit like what we do so eddie and i are in theater producing and it's that right like actually if you can't put the show on you you can't sell the tickets um the time goes you can't there's a period of time where suddenly you can't run a show and then you're completely screwed that's exactly it yeah like when you're talking about sport that isn't football that makes a humongous amount from tv sponsorship lower league football maybe ties into this a little bit more um but rugby maybe as well actually when your revenue is hugely hugely dependent on ticket sales if you don't have those ticket sales you're screwed to use your analogy imagine that you and eddie had put on a show and you'd hired the theater the cast the lighting you'd done everything and then you put the show on but nobody came because you couldn't sell a ticket by law so you still had all of those costs and it yeah. wasn't just one week it was half a season funny you should say that jeremy actually uh last year Ed and I had a show that had to tour out to the Globe Theatre in Rome and three days before we were due to go out there, the um, theatre, a set of stairs at the theatre collapsed and um, the two weeks that we'd sold, basically sold out, every single ticket had to be refunded and we couldn't, the theatre was then under sequester by the local authorities in Rome and uh, it was yeah. a disaster. But that's right, that's it actually, like if you can't... And now we're trying to claw back the money through this shitty little podcast. <laughs> Aperol sponsorship, that's all we're for here. It's interesting you say that because it, lots of the lower league teams, unless in football, haven't been so badly affected by this. They must have quite similar budgets. In fact, much bigger budgets in some respects, um, National League football. Possibly bigger budgets, but had they just forked out for new stadiums and new facilities and loaded up their borrowings accordingly? And I suppose the people who, who are in charge of the finances of the clubs that went under, you know, it's sort of, there's always a hope. There's always something you can do. You've got that letter gone to the tax man. You're asking for a bit of a rebate there. You've got this other potential investment opportunity coming in there. So you're balancing plates trying to figure it out. Yeah. And, it, and then when it comes down, it just comes down at once and none of it's worked, I suppose. But, you know, they probably were potentially, I'd guess one or two flips of the coin away from being fine. Who knows? You could be right. Nobody else was in the uh, in those meetings, but I imagine that's the way it goes. And as I say, I don't think it'll be the end of it just yet. Not necessarily for rugby, but other sports. As outsiders who know nothing about this, you hear that Worcester's gone under, that Wasps have gone under, that Irish have gone under. Um, and especially in the case of kind of Worcester and Wasps, you keep sort of hearing through the grapevine these things of like, oh, no, 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 it's going to be fine. And then next week, like within a couple of days, it all goes under. Um, and even the players didn't have a lot of notice about this. And and the instinct is to kind of blame the owners and be like, you guys suck. It's all your fault. You you know, you're a mess. But actually, it's not that simple is kind of what we're what we're getting to. The well, I think any of. business when it when it's struggling doesn't tell its star players, you know, we've got a problem because they're going to be off and yeah. your other suppliers are going to panic and they won't give you the credit terms, which will help you see your way through. So I guess you do have to present the everything's fine. It's going yeah. to be fine. But as we say, you know, the, the money's not in rugby like it is in, in soccer. It just isn't miles apart. 
absolutely miles apart. And because of that, it's going to be more vulnerable to a downturn. Even if we, we take a look at how rugby's sitting now. So you've got effectively three, possibly four professional leagues in England, the Prem Championship, National League One and Two. The difference in salary between National League One and the Championship isn't that much at all. And then there's a bit of a jump into the premiership. But even then, if you're a top premiership player, you'll earn in a year what a a premiership footballer will earn in a a month or a week in some cases. You don't have the gate receipts. You don't have the, the, the broadcast money. The other thing is broadcast money isn't flexible. So if you've done a deal for five years, seven years or 10 years, if your circumstances change, that's it. And if we had, as we did in lockdown one, a further complication, not only had you lost your your tickets, but you weren't playing at all. Do you then end up in a situation where you lose the broadcast revenue too, because you're not delivering a product? Now, I don't know what happened in that conversation with BT Sport as it was then, but you could technically be in breach across there. So what what does that leave in terms of liability and insurance and, and so on? So it's a problem for rugby that it needs to, to get more money into the sport or it needs to focus more money just into the premiership and move back to amateur through the rest of the National League. And that is probably being discussed somewhere. But if you do that, if you free up those salaries from the lower leagues and put that money into to the premiership, but then you'll have, uh, as, as I have with my local club that shall remain nameless, the chairman there has invested a lot of money and wants to take it as far up the leagues as he can go. Right. So by ring fencing the premiership, all of those clubs chairman that have invested and pushed are going to say no we don't want that and their voting rights with the rfu count as well and if you did go with a ring fence and the the nfl type model of franchises there would have to be a couple of things in place the first one is you'd need to put in player pathways so the professionals could still come through and rise to those ranks and you would have to put in amateur pathways rather like golf where you could go on to represent your country and remain an amateur Mm -hmm. i am available But you'd also have to make sure that you still had a a good geographic spread like the NFL, which means that you would need to be from Newcastle down to Exeter and across the country. Selling those franchises, which means that the club chairmen who want to go up to championship, championship to premiership, their pathway would be to buy a franchise. Mm -hmm. Then you'd have the thorny issue of every premiership club you'd have to buy and sell again overnight. So imagine how many consents you'd have to get from rugby club boards to do that, that you buy their clubs from them and then sell them back to them or sell them to somebody else who knows overnight so that would require a a, a massive capital investment as well and with interest rates as they are borrowing is tough and this whole thing sounds like me singing in the shower jeremy a soap opera so it's doable it's exciting times would that be your if you were in charge would that be your preferred route to deal with this problem i couldn't possibly say that because i don't have all the facts available to me but i do believe that we're coming to a crunch time for rugby in england and it needs to change and 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 this will sound really arrogant to to any Welsh and Scotsman that you've got out there but English rugby and South African rugby are the biggest player bases going and the RFU is or was the uh, the, the wealthiest union if you see England go into demise and, and if you look around Twickenham on, on match day the average age has got to be over 50 and yeah. the tickets are expensive and you're not seeing the kids come through then something's broken and it needs to change and and perhaps the three bankruptcies that we've seen this season are symptoms of a, a bigger problem that's a really good point actually because my sort of my thought process when you we were talking about the issues that they had with obviously like not being able to sell the tickets the kind of gut reaction that you might have as a producer, whether it's theatre, sport, whatever, is to go like, okay, well, let's just kind of combat that by increasing our ticket prices for like next season or whatever. But actually tickets are already pretty expensive here and you can't really raise them much more than they already are, I feel. Especially if you want young people or or, or new people to well, get not, into the sport. Not at Twickenham, as I say, we, we go to Italy before the podcast, before this whole passion, before everything really started. It started off us going to watch England play play in Italy many moons ago because it was basically cheaper to go to Rome to watch a game there than it was to go to Twickenham. The same amount of money we could fly out to Rome, stay there and watch a game. And then gradually I've switched allegiance and now basically... Basically, I'm a man. I will have to delete that. What? That you switched allegiances? I was going to you, call myself Luigi. You host an Italian podcast. I think you're allowed to say you've switched allegiances from being a, a long time Wasp supporter to being a Benetton supporter. Oh, right. Sorry. I thought you meant you weren't supporting England because I'm sure that that's a traitor. <laughs> 
He doesn't. He doesn't support England. He never talks about it. Well, the thing is, the thing is, Jeremy, if you get really into watching a team, watching Benetton and then watching Italy play, and then you watch that team, and the only team that Italy haven't beaten in the Six Nations is England. So I'd be lying if I said when Italy were playing England, I wouldn't like to be there and see the history being made. And it's impossible to support Benetton and not really support Italy because the player base is the same. Also, do you know how much they charge for pints at Twickenham? Oh, Jeremy, you need to come out. Oh, I thought you were going to say in Treviso. Oh, in Treviso. Oh, Jeremy, you, if you came to Treviso with us, you would be a convert. You would. You'd be growing Italy. a moustache overnight. I, I do love Italy. I've traded a lot of Kiwi in-laws with uh, with an ex-wife for a lot of Italian in-laws with us. There you go. Well, that's it. Next season, we will take you out to Treviso. Two euro Prosecco, the best Prosecco you've drunk in your life. I actually think you would love it. You would absolutely love it. And then afterwards, you go to the bar, little shed they've got at the back of the stadium, and... All the players are there, the coaches are there, everyone's there. And it's got like a real, in the nicest way possible, like an amateur rugby field, but it's a professional outfit. It's great. We've converted Coach. Coach is now a diehard. He spends every time that we're, we fly him out. He's like, why don't I live here? So it's the home of Tiramisu and Prosecco. What's not the... to like? I do, I do love Italy. I do love Italy. I, I can't bring myself to follow the Italian team. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. But so but, why isn't this happening in France? France has a ton of clubs. France, arguably, I think, are quite similar in, in the sort of number of clubs that they've got. In the pro- Actually, they get probably bigger crowds than English clubs do. Their, their stadiums look insanely packed every week. Um, is that it? Like, what, why is it not happening there? Right. So I don't, I don't have the, the financial information on, on French rugby. But I would hazard a guess that first things first, French rugby went through its own dip not mm-hmm. long ago. The French rugby team was, uh, let's face it, not that great. I think Italy beat them. So <laughs> we almost beat them this Six Nations, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> so they they went through their own dip and and, and restructure. But the way the French dealt with COVID and the financing coming from the French government could well have been different than what came from from our government then you have to look at well which of them was was really investing in in facilities and there's a lot of different things there their whole structure is is different you can learn a few things and and yeah it's great when we used to go down to Toulon and and go for what was then the Heineken Cup matches you have a great time and you meet the players just as you said in in Italy and it it was far more and Ireland's like that as well it's it's a different structure and that's probably why it's not happening and and the Anglo-Saxon way the English way is uh, is to let things fail so uh, we had this example with Eurostar during COVID that the French were keen for the British government to help bail it out and the British government said no it's a private company the fact that the French government owns most of it isn't our problem that tends to be the Anglo-Saxon way of cutting through it's it's slightly less socialist Mm -hmm. don't bail out as much except when it comes to rail right we seem to like the trains seem to get away with like being bailed out by the government time and time again these Rail the, there's always exceptions and, yeah. and of course there's the 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 mp that pork barrel politics isn't it when they bail out a local local firm so but that whole culture even, even with the the inflation problems and power the french government squashed the inflation on on energy mm. by saying here's the cap that's as much as you can charge yeah and the government picked up the rest of it so yes the french will pay for it through their taxes they have a different way of handling things whereas with our guys it was well, we'll give you a little bit of money towards your bills, but they allowed companies to go bust there. And so I think the final kind of question that I have um, in relation to this sort of issue is that Wales, as you've already touched upon, is going through a very similar thing, but they seem to be dealing with it by just telling players that they have to accept 30K as their salary. Well, that's the way they're dealing with it. If you look at most salaries in rugby, 30K is not bad. It's mm. uh, it's different in the premiership. It's it's higher. But if you're National League One, then you'd be you'd be chuffed with 30K. Yeah. Wales isn't uh, that big a country. It isn't that. Uh, I know it's got a great rugby heritage and we'd love to see Wales doing really well. Do we? That, that, yeah. that, no one's going to believe you when you say that, Jeremy. <laughs> I, I don't have a problem with the Welsh. I spent the 91 World Cup final holed up in a pub right in the middle of Wales and I thought I had to keep my mouth shut or I'd be dead. Do you know, every single one of them, bar some young kid, supported England against Australia in that World Cup final. And when some kid got a bit out of line and was very anti-English, they threw him out the pub. And so ever since then, I've, I've had a big soft spot for Wales. Wow, you'd never think that. No. 
You'd think that anyone who's not English supports anyone except England. That's sort of the the motto that you hear, like that great Six Nations ad many years ago. You would assume that, but uh, but this was the time they proved it right. They proved the BBC yeah. wrong. Who'd have thought? I'm a bit Welsh. My cousins think they're Welsh, and they're just as Welsh as I am. But Eddie's well. never set foot in Wales. I've never crossed the River Severn. <laughs> If that's even its name, I don't even know. I guess the issue was, but now they've changed that rule, that you couldn't represent Wales if you didn't play in Wales. But now they've gone like, okay, you accept a 30k salary, or if you want to leave, you can leave, but you can still play for Wales. Yeah, uh, but all, all, all you're doing is shifting the, the, the costs elsewhere. So the, the market will always find its level. Okay, so you're a good Welshman and you can earn more money in France. Well, great, but you do disappear off the horizon. And in taking that role, you then deprive a French kid of their pathway yeah. up into uh, their premiership. And I think this was partially the problem France had a few years ago, that they were hiring in loads of ex-Kiwis and, and Aussies that had reached their peak with their national teams and they came into premium rugby in France. And that stops a kid coming up and through. Mm. And contrast that with what the Irish have done very cleverly on, on getting game time for their their kids in academies and pushing them out so even, even though you could argue most of it and probably is around the leinster they yeah. push the kids into the other provinces what a change look where ireland are in the world rankings yeah they thought about it they've planned long term and they've uh, they've put in place a really good program yeah short term you could earn more money going abroad but in the medium term that will will level out as well i mean that is interesting but lots of countries do have that um protectionist sort of approach so like in italy now you the from last year the clubs are only allowed i think seven in a match day squad non-italian qualified players in france they've got i think they call it gif players and so that those guys are really high in demand and there's a couple of italian players because they don't do it if you're eligible for france they do it whether you came through a french academy so um tomaso allen who obviously plays for italy he's off to perpignan as a GIF player and um the prop cecerelli as well even though he plays for italy he was france trained so he counts as well. So that means they can get those guys in and then get the foreigners in to, to make up numbers. Each country has its own thing. So uh, salary caps and how that's made up with international players or foreign nationals peers in each of the, the country's makeups. But so French rugby must have more money than the RFU because they don't have a salary cap, right? Well, that's private though, isn't it? Ellie, I don't, I don't know what the cap was. Uh, um, I'm out of touch on that one for French rugby. I'd have to look, but France has got quite a complex, or, or the French clubs have quite a complicated payment structure. That may have changed. And I remember there being some tension between the clubs and, uh, and the French rugby union uh, a few years ago. But in my opinion, salary caps don't work. And we saw that with Saracens. People find a way around it because they want to win and compete. I'm going to go with good old Thatcher economics have let the market decide rich is nodding away because yes the, there isn't enough money to go around but the money will go to the the, the places where there's a, a competitive advantage and bear in mind if you are the club that's bought every great player and you've invested loads of money and you've got the world 15 playing for you great you go out and crush the opposition then you end up with nobody to to play against and the sport's boring and your TV rights go down and nobody really cares anymore. And all of a sudden you've, you've crushed the market and lost the market all in one go. So the money will spread out because you still need somebody to play against. And this brings us back to the RFU and, and the way that they're supporting clubs at levels from community all the way through the national leagues. Part of their role is to bring up those kids, that, that um, player base, and enable those clubs to find competitive leagues that they're in. And, and play against it. Perhaps if we, we went back and, and away from leagues and enabled a whole club to play another local club, those markets would, would stabilise too. Where at the moment, you've got the first playing in one league, the second in another, thirds in another. And you could argue that that's hit the integrity of clubs, but it's been around for, crikey, 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So where do you want to chart the, the declines and the ups and downs from? So in, in answer to the earlier question, I don't think the RFU is doing a bad job and I wouldn't blame the RFU for what's happening. It's just these guys made investments based on the best information they had at the time. Yeah. And the guys in Wuhan took them away. And on that note, I'm trying to look for another dad joke and they're all, they're all, <laughs> they're all even too bad for me to read on here. That's been fascinating. Yeah. It, just to sum up. So if you want a positive, so that yes. Eddie doesn't have to reach for another 
dreadful <laughs> crackerjack. I think sport as a whole is going to to really come through in the next few years as the place to invest and the business centre, if you like, for, for a lot of things. Firstly, nobody's going to go and pay good money to watch two robots with a pile of AI compete with each other. So it's always going to be a human competition. And secondly, we're seeing a lot more money coming in, particularly from the streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. BT Sport, as we know, has, has, um, has gone and that'll be merged pretty much with Eurosport. So there's money coming in from that. Where we work with a lot of technology businesses around sport, the ecosystems, there's so much new technology coming in and that generates new rights. And our job is to go to rights holders and say, look, are you aware that you've now got all of these rights you can commercialize? And this is how they work together. And this is how things will work with your betting, with um, regulation, with uh, Marshall's accreditation, whatever it might be. We We can put it all together so that you earn more money. And as that money comes through, and this is just our company's point of view we like to see it going back to grassroots as well Mm -hmm. so if we take somebody like uh the app tour which is paddle boards they've got tremendous grassroots sport very small professional i bet you guys have never never seen happen but their plans for the future are are fantastic so they've they've moved the professional element from marine and sea where everybody's just got one visual aspect to now being able to do it at canary wharf or on the seine in paris so you can build stadium around what's going on on the water we can use drones rather than helicopters yeah. in the, the production we can tick it more effectively but they then go to canary wharf and say hey canary wharf give us the infrastructure and we'll put an academy in now how many people do you know hop on a, a board and go off on their two-week holiday? So the participation level is this big and growing. And by putting in the academies and feeding money back into the grassroots, they'll grow their spectator base by having more people play. And as you have more people play and compete, your professional bit comes on. So you create this convection current of money and talent. Mm. It's long-term. It's a 10-year program, but 10 years goes past so quickly. You know, the under-10s at rugby down the road, within the next eight to 10 years, they're playing first-team rugby. So I think yeah. sport's in good shape overall. It's just had a really rubbish two or three years through no fault of its own. I like that. That's positive. That's a really and, upbeat way to... And for those of you listening on the podcast who couldn't see, what Jeremy was doing was he was gesturing that it's getting better. It's very comforting <laughs> hand movements. I, th- I think you were going to see billions more pushed into to sport. Well, we are already, aren't we? I mean, the Saudis are, are all over the place with their, their investments. Moving on. Uh... <laughs> Finally, obviously, this is an Italian rugby podcast. Italy is in the Six Nations, a tournament most people have heard of. There's always a lot of talk about what's going on with the Six Nations. Were South Africa going to join? That's being kicked into the long grass. Should Georgia or European rugby have a crack at the Six Nations, which sounds fair, and I think most rugby fans would be for that, but it seems like it's pretty impossible because the Six Nations is a closed shop company. So just a little bit about what is the deal there? When everyone's banging on about Twitter about let there be a relegation promotion playoff, what's what's really possible or not possible? Okay, so this is your, um, your ring fencing the premiership happening at an international level. European rugby based in in Paris takes care of, in fact, the home nations are also contracted to European rugby, but it's, it's, it's separated out. So they will look after the Georgias, the uh, the Portugals, the Spains, and, so on. and they do a great job bringing grassroots and competitive levels of, of rugby to, to Europe. You've got to take your hat off to, to Florent Marti and his, his team. They've done a great job. So then let's say you, you start to bring in relegation and demotion. Follow that through. If you promoted Georgia in, and let's say the Scots went down. It's an Italian podcast. We'll go with that. Scotland's gone. So let's say the Scots went down. Scotland go into the rest of Europe and absolutely hammer everybody. They spank them every week. Yeah. Why would the opposition turn up to be spanked? You lose interest. Your product's not very good. And let's say you brought Georgia in and Georgia suddenly had 50,000 English people. Where would it accommodate them? Where would they go into the stadium and so on? So you've got exactly the same issue that you'd have with, say, Ealing Trailfinders coming up to the premiership. You don't have the stadiums. You don't have the, the support base. You increase everybody's costs in terms of travel. And there is a big step change between that and the Six Nations. And a lot of that's what the uh, the World Cup is designed to, to bring up those nations. And if you look at what it's done for developing countries rugby and i don't mean that as in their developing nations i mean their their rugby's developing yeah. it's been pretty fantastic so rugby as a whole i think is in is in good health it needs a few tweaks here and there and a bit of radical pruning in in one or two countries but you can't have a situation where you drop out the six nations into a league you're going to to spank everybody nor can you come up from that league and have a good time if you look at how italy struggled 
Yeah. And it's always bottom end, uh, one or two. What chance would Spain have or Germany or um, yeah, yeah. Georgia? So at the moment, I don't think it's workable. But as I say, the European rugby guys in Paris do a great job. They really do. But isn't it worth the risk of having it? Because the likelihood of a playoff, right, from like the top of the tier two and the bottom of the Six Nations would attract a huge following on TV. Like you could sell those TV rights for a ton of money. And it's, no, not not loads and loads of money. Jeremy gestures a small amount of money with his hands. Tiny, tiny, tiny amount of money. Oh, really? I would imagine everyone would watch that. Like whether you're an England fan, a French fan, whatever, like the playoff between, let's say, Scotland and Georgia. I mean, even though Scotland's very likely to win it, but you never know. Okay. Um, so wouldn't everyone watch that? Let's put it this way then, because you, you get something similar. How many Rugby World Cup qualifying matches for the upcoming World Cup in France have you watched and you're a rugby fan? Only the Italy ones. <laughs> so you didn't watch Georgia, you didn't watch the other ones, no? No. And that's the problem. The TV audiences for rugby union... Uh, rugby feels like it's a big sport and it, it's obviously my, my primary sport and I loved it I really did but it is tiny and in terms of TV audiences in terms of player figures it's tiny even in England one of the reasons that we have a 3pm block out on premiership football clubs on Saturday afternoon is because it was firstly brought in to protect the other football leagues why would somebody in Division 4 or the Vanarama League go and pay their money to watch one of those matches when Manchester United are playing Liverpool on, on your TV on Saturday afternoon so you have the 3 p.m blackout mm. and i know that the football league the championship have voted to get rid of that now but the premier league sucks eyeballs and money away from every other sport in the country on a huge scale so when you start to see that gulf in difference between that and what you get in terms of watching romania play georgia at rugby in a playoff how many people do you think would really tune in to see that maybe not as many as i think and that's it that's the problem if you don't have the eyeballs if you don't have the spectators it's not going to grow on it how do you grow the spectators well local club to me chinna rugby club has hundreds of kids literally hundreds of kids there every sunday morning and that means that another club has to supply hundreds of kids so you've got a yeah. thousand kids down there which probably means you've got at least 1500 really frozen parents on a wet sunday in january but those 1500 parents watch their kids and then as their kids start to play first class rugby they tune in and watch there and that's where you get the convection current coming up so this is why european rugby based out of paris does such a great job of also trying to hang on to quality players in those countries and keep them playing in those countries because if they come and play in england or wales or, or in france that deprives their leagues of talent and it also deprives us of uh, of our own pathways coming through so it looks like it's it's all doom and gloom it isn't as long as we can get more kids playing rugby and any other sport you've got to get the grassroots out there because football sucks eyeballs and with it it takes the money and it's tricky because football takes everything because it's so easy to play it whoever you are wherever you are the thing that makes football so simple and so universal is that you just need a ball um obviously it's not quite as simple with most yeah, you're right it's, it's, it's a ball and, and two jumpers yeah. but then you look at the way people play cricket in the windies or in um mm. in india where you just paint three stumps on a on a wall somewhere and yeah. And that's it. it it's, it's that. The, the second one is you look at the United States and the money available for sport in the United States. And if you think the premiership has a lot of money, wait till you, you look at the NBA or, or NFL. It's a different league again. So you need a big market. And, and what the US has that Europe doesn't have is it's got a homogeneous market to our heterogeneous market. Generally, as well, on the commercial side, they have much better tech than we do. We've got more exciting sports. But, um, you should never date a tennis player. Love means nothing to them. Oh, God. Right. The final question then, I guess, to round this all off. What do you think the future of the Six Nations looks like? I mean, is it, you know, let's say over the next 10 years, will it still be the Six Nations? Do you see it growing? Do you see it changing from what it is? Or is the Six Nations sort of something that is just cemented? It's good to go. It's sort of untouchable and... Too iconic to change. Yeah. So in 1997... Would you have said the five nations would never change? Or could you see that changing so that in 99 it was the last of the five nations? I don't know. It's it's a really tough one, that. 
would you swap out Italy for South Africa? Never. No, no because, well, for lots of reasons. I, I think South Africa has a bit of an arrogance that they could just sort of wander in. Like they, they're in the rugby championship down under. Then they're like, oh, we'll come to the Six Nations. Oh, we'll join the URC. As if they're walking around as if they can do whatever they want. No, the world doesn't work that way, I'm afraid. You get in line. I don't think they're, they're like that, to be honest. They've had one coach, which is, uh, which is very like that, but I don't think yeah. that they are. <laughs> but if you took South Africa out the Southern Hemisphere, you see Australia, you think the Aussies, it's it's a big sport, but rugby union is a small sport there. In New South mm. Wales, rugby league is the big one. And in Victoria, it's AFL. And you head down to New Zealand where it's a massive sport, but the population of yeah. New Zealand, we've got more people watch EastEnders than live in New Zealand. <laughs> so if you took South Africa and their player numbers out and moved them in to make it the Six Nations or the Seven Nations, that would really damage the Southern Hemisphere uh, yeah. competitiveness but they're in the same time zone as us although i mean who's traveling to south africa for a, a weekend game really like right the thing that makes the six nations so fantastic is that i can go right i'm going to paris for the weekend right i'm popping over to dublin for the weekend for for this one-off game like you can't really do that yes you can and south africa's beauty is you can hop on a plane at 10 p.m. and wake up in South Africa the next day and it's in the same time zone. There's no jet lag. It's totally doable. I've done it. If that happened, you're doing it at the expense, in my opinion, you're doing it at the expense of your, your once every 12-year Lions tours. You know, that suddenly like the big deal about going down there isn't as much. Your international tours as well in the summer, they don't become as important. And to be honest, if I'm going to get on a plane, if it's not to Italy, then I, I, I would actually rather, I mean, Georgia's actually quite far away, to be honest. People don't really understand how far away Georgia is. <laughs> But, you know, Portugal, I'd go to Lisbon, I'd go to Barcelona. These teams are getting better. And I think it'd be a bit unfair just for some other bigwig just to come in and, and take their spot that they might be earning. So how, how do you feel then about the South Africans being in the Champions Cup this year? We've got to be very diplomatic here because we obviously love the BKT URC, which isn't <laughs> called the BKT URC when it's in South Africa. They call it the Vodacom URC because of the rights. So even though it's the name. same tournament, it's got different sponsors based on whether it's in Europe or in South Africa. Yeah, obviously they're in and they've they won it last year with the stormers so you know we can't say that the teams aren't good we know the teams are good but I actually, I don't think it's that exciting having them in. I think it actually would be more exciting if they gave whatever their best side in Georgia is a crack. There's no promotion and relegation from the URC either. So you could allow a little bit of time and people would support that. And I think as well, the issue that we've seen from watching the URC, obviously we watch that weekly because Benetton's in that, is that the South African teams seem to play pretty shit when they're here, when they're in Europe. But then anyone who travels to South Africa pretty much gets thumped. It just seems to be like, Oh, okay, great. We're we're away in South Africa this weekend, regardless of who you are, whether you're well, that, that's, Glasgow, that's, Edinburgh, Benetton. That's and... a great point because also talk about the money in sport, you know. And we joked about this with Jacob Mungo when he was on there. I said they must hate Ryanair because Benetton tend not haven't done well this season on the road. And he said, oh, we're more of a jet too kind of you know. In football, it's private jets, and they get there in comfort. Or they rent out first and business and off they go. Whereas there was a video, I think it was the, um, which one's the one sponsored by Emirates? The Lions. Emirates Lions flying up, not on Emirates, obviously, on some random airline <laughs> to play a match. And they just had all their people seeing an economy for however many hours. And they were playing a top level game the next day. And it's like, that's that's garbage. You, a teams can't perform at the top level on the road when they're traveling in. It makes whatever coach we used to travel on in rugby look luxurious. But that's what happened in super rugby for years. And it was a tremendous spectacle. You'd have the South Africans, the Aussies and the Kiwis traveling to each other, playing pretty much that model. And then I think they overexpanded it and it lost a bit of its its pizzazz. But there was a time when we were living back home that Super Rugby was was considered better than the international rugby. I don't have a problem with the Saffers joining joining the Champions Cup. I think it's uh, it's good and it gives you an opportunity to play against teams that play in a different way. You're right about being on the road. That was always tough. And uh, when the Saffers arrived in in New Zealand, it was it was fairly brutal one way. When it went the other way, it was fairly brutal. Yeah. Was that you're shifting day into night, even though you're in the same hemisphere. But at least when you're playing in Europe, you haven't got that time zone. I mean, I'm not massively against it. I wasn't sort of saying like, oh, when they joined, oh, no, they, they shouldn't be part of it. Let's not forget that the first tournament that the South Africans joined was the uh, Pro 14 Rainbow Cup, which Benetton won. Uh, beat the Bulls in a terrific final. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's definitely worth <laughs> checking out. I'll we'll send, send you the, the highlights. highlights. 
so you can check it out. Benetton were amazing in that. Beat all the bookies. But I do think there should be some space for uh, some of the other clubs, maybe in the Challenge Cup, to come through and have a crack. I did that a couple of years with some Russian teams and things, and it wasn't a great success, but I think they could do it better now. But there's your promotion and, and relegation. It's not so much from a league, but if you don't qualify in your own league at a certain level, that says what cup you're going into. The same as soccer does with, with UEFA. So Mm -hmm. it's there. And I think that UEFA's way of dealing with it for qualifying is important. So the smaller countries, their leagues don't give you straight access to Champions League or uh, Europa. You have to do a series of qualifiers to prove that the club's good enough and then you you qualify in. So that could be something that's that's looked at if it isn't already. Obviously, England right now, if the club's missing, they've got some fairly simple qualifications for the Champions Cup because they've got less teams and more spots well it'll be interesting to see what comes out i hope that the irish deal for london irish goes through i used to enjoy playing against london irish uh, i hope that goes through and that was come back at some point worcester i'm afraid seems to have disappeared completely and that's a shame because it looked like neil diamond was doing a really great job at giving everyone hope um maybe not <laughs> <laughs> But aren't Wasps going to have to basically like climb their way out of like the lowest, like it's going to take a long time for Wasps to come back, even if they get the money and get stuff back in order, because they've they're now starting from the bottom, right? Well, yes, no, again, nothing's clear, is it? You've got a big name and you've got a club that could, if it gets the right finances, take over Worcester's old ground at six ways. And so you've got a stadium that will do the job. And then you've got people like Ealing Trailfinders who effectively have qualified but don't have any of that and would need to look for it all. So how do you work it out? Some, somewhere along the line, you've got to be fairly pragmatic. It comes back to, as I said, if, if, if you're a governing body, you're always going to put somebody's nose out of joint. Somebody will believe... It should be this way. It should be that. And everybody's got an opinion in sport, as we know. I mean, it would be fantastic if London Irish were able to come back as a sort of fifth Irish province and not play in the Premiership, but be a in the URC URC side playing from London so that everyone in London has a chance of that seeing would be great. Leinster, Ulster, and obviously Zebra. We so, would be there. As a Londoner, you can do all of that anyway. You can hop on a flight to, to Dublin. And one of the things that we talk to rights holders about is that your sport, whilst you live it and you breathe it, and quite possibly you played in it, you are competing with every other sport for attention and eyeballs. But you're also competing with everything else somebody can do in London. Go to the theatre and see mm-hmm. you guys. Go shopping. Whatever it might be that people spend their time at. So would you put another club into London or would you put it elsewhere in the country? So London Irish isn't London anymore, is it? It was down at Reddingway. Would you put them somewhere else? Would you expand the franchises out so that London doesn't dominate it with lots of big clubs? And if you are London, then your communications are are great with the rest of the world. So you can always fly over and see Leinster play. It's a really good weekend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As I say, the the sport's coming for a shake-up and I think we're probably at than a deer at the moment and and it will will start to get better from here i don't think england will have a great world cup unfortunately but um, uh, we can rebuild on from there who are you predicting to win well i could never support france <laughs> of course not i'd have to go with the irish and yeah. uh, and wish them well I, I think they're playing some really exciting rugby i've seen them beat the kiwis too often and the games that they've put on just outstanding yeah. i think farrell is without doubt the best coach and he was a great loss to the RFU when he went over to Ireland so I'd tip Ireland for it but I think it'll be close I think it's the most open World Cup we've seen oh okay I like that well coach there agrees you with are. you coach coach said Ireland coach spent <clears> his money on I've Ireland I've changed my mind I've changed my mind what <laughs> left turn <laughs> I think Australia are gonna win it what well, well Eddie, Eddie Jones, Jones does give you that kind of anything can happen. And there, there was a bit of annoyance. There was this one player, uh, um, Benetton back row, who was playing at Ealing, who was eligible to play for Italy. And he scored a ridiculous number of tries. Tizano, I think is his name. And um, one phone call from Eddie Jones and shoop, straight back to Australia, being poached. And he's playing over there now. And uh, so he'll be in the Australia squad. That's what I mean. It is the most open. You don't you don't know what the Aussies are going to come back with. Jones and the Kiwis are always fantastic. What are they going to bring over? The Saffirs, same thing. Everybody had written them off at the last World Cup and they went through and they played like England did in 2003, strangled the opposition, just suffocated them. Uh, mm. And then you've got Ireland and France. So this, yeah, it's it's really open. Should be, should be, I think, the best World Cup we've seen today. Have you got some great tickets? I gave my tickets back when I didn't think England would win it. No! 
No, you didn't. <laughs> you were just having a bad day, Jeremy. <laughs> I don't take the piss, but that does seem like something that Coach would do. <laughs> yeah. I don't want these anymore. You have them. Yeah, I've been to, to all the World Cup finals with England in them, and on the other ones, I've had the tickets and I've given them back so that somebody who supports those, those oh, countries... Oh, that's great. And I think that the way that... It may even have been the RFU that pushed the idea on the IRB that when the World Cup was held here, they set up an exchange method so you didn't end up with touts charging thousands and thousands for tickets. You sold your tickets back to the issuing authority, and they then issued them to somebody else who was a genuine fan at face value. And I thought that was great. That's, that's great. The way it should be. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Some people have tried and failed to get tickets. Hopefully we'll try and get some. Can't believe he didn't give them to me. Um... Eddie, I didn't think Italy would be in the final either. Well, don't. In Italian, we say don't count your chickens. Wait, do you say that in English as well? Yeah, that sounds English. Don't count your chickens. Io conosco i miei polli. One last final thing you've got to go. There's talks about Italy applying to host one of the next Rugby World Cups, a joint venture with Italian football and Italian rugby to update their stadium so they're able to host a uh, a major football tournament and the Rugby World Cup. Think that sounds like a good idea? Yeah, why not? Obviously. uh, World Rugby is going to, to vet the, the application, but why not? Isn't it great? Who doesn't like a, a weekend away in Italy? Indeed. So, okay, that's yeah. exactly the right answer. This is exactly but I think right. it's really clever what they've done, this idea that they've sort of co- collaborated, so the um, FIR with the Fiji Chi, to sort of say like, right, well, actually, if we, if you guys the football revamp your stadiums and make them such that we can host rugby in them that really helps us grow the sport because there is now in Italy they're they're trying at least from what I've understood to really collaborate or at least help the Federazione Rugby from the football side and a great way of doing that is if you build your stadiums in such a way that rugby could be hosted there then actually in the 20 I think it's the 2032 Euros and then the 2034 whatever Rugby World Cup could both put in a bid. I'm all for it I really am I I don't like stadiums where they have a running track that keeps you miles from the pitch. We have yeah. a lot of those in Italy, unfortunately. One of the great things that Cardiff Arms Park and now the Millennium Stadium has is that you, whenever you're there, it feels like you can just reach out mm. and touch the grass. Yeah. And that's really rather special. Yeah, why not? And, and the fact that in Italy they ground share anyway. We, we seem to have this thing at Twickenham is just for rugby union i know it's had the odd pop concert but it's just for rugby union it's for english rugby union uh, old trafford is just for manchester united whereas there they they share one team away one team yeah. home just as we've seen occasionally in nfl in the states with uh, people like the giants and the jets through the the 80s so why not have italy there why not and who doesn't love a weekend in the sunshine watching rugby and drinking spritz. Oh, Jeremy, thank you so, so much. I feel like we could have spent another hour talking about this, but it's been so, so, so useful to just kind of get a bit more of an understanding of what's going on and and what the future holds. But the future looks bright and that sounds good to us. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here. Italy to win the Rugby World Cup. Jeremy Kent said that himself. I did not. I certainly (laughs) did not. There's no way it's going out with that. Thank you so, so much. This has been great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Grazie mille. Thanks. What a guy. What a guy. He really tolerated all of your really shit jokes as well. Some top knowledge. I've met him before. Top knowledge. I tell you, what that man does not know, I mean, obviously about sports commercialization, but just generally at a pub quiz, he's the guy you want. He knows everything. He is. He wins all the pub quizzes and... It was a pleasure to have him on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while we were off air, he even guessed that Coach was an ex-rugby player. And when we asked what position he thought the coach played, (laughs) he said definitely either a one or a three. Couldn't be a two. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't be further from my position. I still haven't uploaded the backflip, front flip video. I will do that. I will do that. I promise. Um, But yeah, guys, I realized that that was totally nothing to do with Italian rugby. However, we just felt with Irish going under last week, it just felt like we needed to talk about it and having somebody with the knowledge that he had. It doesn't matter whether you're a Benetton fan, whether you're a a Wasps fan, whether you're a La Rochelle fan. Well, it impacts rugby as a whole. We're an Italian rugby podcast, but the entire rugby world has been shaken by what's happened this season in English rugby. So it's definitely worth talking about. And it was great to have him on. Until next time, rugby fans. Ciao a tutti. Arrivederci. Ciao.